Nice job, Caleb. I'd like to welcome everyone again this morning. Seems like we've had an eventful morning. Some stuff going on out in the car park or whatever. I hope everybody's okay. All I heard is when we met in the meeting that Jonathan was talking to the police. I thought that's a way to start a morning there. But prayerfully, everything's all right. Olaf and Mir, everything's good. Amen. Praise God for that. I also want to welcome someone visiting from our sister church in Hong Kong. They're visiting the Smiths. So Shelly, I think she's... Could, could you stand up, please? There she is, Shelly. Great to have you here. And also, last week was a great week. Hannah not only moved in, and we also saw another Hannah get baptized, which was really cool. And she's back in Wellington, listening or watching or something of that nature, along with our friends Radon and Rachel in Wellington. So you can give a quick shout out. John's going to give a quick pant. Look at that. They get some coverage. And when it reaches that side and comes back around, you can say hi to Mike and Maria from Christchurch. So you can go back around. Yeah, there we go. Yep. Yeah, there you go. We have an online presence of four people, five, and growing. So that's awesome. Also, this coming week, we have six of our members going over to Australia for the School of Missions, which is awesome. That's kind of our, our training academy for, for young men and women, so we're excited about that. They'll head over to Australia, and then Megan and myself will be in Australia for about four or five days as well, visiting the church in Melbourne and Sydney, then we come back. So I think John is preaching next Sunday. Are you preaching? Let's, let's pan to John and say... There you go. That's John. And last, before we kind of dive in, Peter also got his work visa. So he's here for another three years. Yeah. That's awesome. Congratulations. So what we do in our church is something called expository preaching. It's really a fancy word to say we, we pick a book of the Bible and we go through it chapter by chapter. And that way God really teaches what he wants instead of us choosing our agenda. So if you would have came last week, we would have studied chapters 3 and 4. Today we're chapter 5. Next week, chapter 6. I say that for a couple of reasons. One is that's kind of always the way we practice preaching. So we pick a book and we kind of systematically study it out. And as a young minister, one, one year, the men got together for a staff meeting and we were going through the book of 1 Corinthians and we landed on 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in the study of the book, which if you know about it, it's about sexual immorality. And it happened to fall on the same day as Mother's Day. And so the, it was a men's only staff meeting and we said, here, you know, what do we do here? Do we stick with the text or do we cater to the mothers? And we said, we stick to the text. And so unfortunately, we made a bad call and we went for it and we preached 1 Corinthians 5. Happy Mother's Day. We're talking about immorality today. And of course, when the women met, they said, what were you guys thinking? Don't, don't ever do that again. And so I say that to say, it's not Mother's Day, so we're not, we're not going to carry on that tradition, but we are studying that. But I also say that because often some people will come and say, hey, I felt like you were trying to say something to me. And No. 
okay, this, we just go through a book of the Bible and God speaks as he sees fit. Amen? So that's just to help you understand how all that goes. There's a fail in there. Don't preach about immorality on Mother's Day. But there's also an encouragement. It's God speaking to you personally. So let's pray together and read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and talk about three things this morning. Let's pray. God, we are, we are so grateful that you're our Father in heaven, the creator and sustainer and redeemer, restorer, and we want to worship you in spirit and truth. This morning, please let your spirit open our minds and our hearts so that we can really, really truly see deep into the passage what you meant to say to the church thousands of years ago, but what you also want to say to us thousands of years later. For all this in Christ's name, amen. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If not, it's on the screen, and we'll read together 13 verses. Come on, let's go. We are. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. I can't get this Mother's Day thing out of my head. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, I bet my mom listening, like, what's going on? And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter. This is a letter that we don't have anymore, but obviously he wrote more than one letter. There's two in the New Testament to the church in Corinth. Most people think he wrote four, but there was one that he wrote saying not to associate with immoral people. And they say, well, what are we supposed to do, Paul? Not talk to anybody? So now he's clarifying it to say, that's clearly not what I meant. I wrote to him my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. So it's not just immorality, but he lumps a lot of things that seem serious that you can't claim to be a Christian and continue to do. And then he gets even stronger, do not even eat with such people. And table fellowship is a big deal in the, in the New Testament. Still today, when we take communion, he's saying, don't eat with this kind of person. In verse 12, what business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. 
So here we have Paul writing this letter to a church, and in chapters 1 through 4, he's already talked about their division. And we've already covered that. So he he says, the cross or, or grace should unify you, not divide you. That's the essence of chapter 4. Now in chapter 5 through 7, he starts to talk about another area of life that was pervasive in Corinth, immorality. It's, it's no different today, quite honestly. So this still has application for us today. And Corinth was a city known for its grotesque immorality. When someone was converted, they had to try so desperately hard to leave that background. As it is today when people convert from the world and have an immoral past, it's, it's a tough call to distance yourself from that. But that's what he's explaining the cross helps us do, is distance ourselves from a culture like that. We know what's going on very clearly in this passage. We don't have to guess. A lot of times you have to kind of figure it out. We know that someone in their membership is having an ongoing sexual relationship with their mother-in-law. And the Bible says, the reason we know it's mother-in-law is Leviticus differentiates between mother and father's wife. In the law, it says, do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That will be your mother-in-law. His wife has passed. He marries someone else. Don't have relations with that person. Your mother-in-law. That would dishonor your father. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says he is sleeping with his father's wife. The man's wife has died. Possibly he got a younger wife. We don't know. But at some point, his son starts having an ongoing relationship. This isn't a one-off slip-up. In a moment of weakness. It says... That he has been sleeping with her. And later on it says for the man who has been doing this. This is an ongoing thing. And we know Paul's solution. Get rid of that guy. Have him leave your fellowship so that he can be saved. That's kind of the nuts and bolts of it. But included in this we get some bigger pictures that are still relevant for us today. And we'll talk about three of those. The unleavened loaf. Probably ever won't learn about bread in a sermon, but you will today. Secondly, get rid of the old. Third, live like the new. Let's talk about the unleavened bread, first of all. Because Paul talks about that in verses 6 through 8. And the reason he does is this is the basis for all of his instruction. That's very important because all of his behavior and practical advice stems from something related to the gospel message. And I want to emphasize that. He doesn't just say, here's what you need to do, but here's the essence, here's the reason why you ought to do and live like you should based on this concept, verses 6 through 8. In a normal everyday life, if you were a Jew, you'd eat leavened bread. That meant it had yeast in it, it would rise, and so that's kind of your normal bread eating. However, when God rescued Israel from Egypt... He, caused, he called them to celebrate the Passover. And everybody's kind of heard of that. Included in the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He rescues Israel and he says, I want you to celebrate this new celebration. Don't make any bread with yeast. Don't make your bread leavened. That may not make any sense to us whatsoever. Part of it is you can make bread quickly with no yeast and they could just roll out. 
But a bigger picture was, the idea is when they made bread, they would take some of the old yeast and include it in the new batch, and the yeast would kind of spread and cause the bread to rise. But it was also kind of a contaminant. Yeast is a fungus. So it causes the bread to spread and spoil, but it also causes it, causes it to rise. And so what, what, what God says to Israel is, for seven days when you celebrate, eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. Don't even have it in your house. For whoever eats anything with yeast for the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. So you get the idea. Like when we celebrate this, clean the house, guys. Everybody go look. Make sure there's no yeast in the house. But it went even further. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. During this festival, eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. The whole nation, get rid of the yeast. I mean, this, this is a big deal, okay? And it was meant not just to say so we can hurry up and go, but it, yeast was old, it contaminated and spoiled. God is saying, I'm picking you out of Israel and starting a new people. All of this false, old, false worship, get rid of it. I'm, I'm plucking you out and starting something new, a new loaf, a new batch, completely from scratch. Get rid of all the old. This, this would really be embedded, pardon the pun, embedded into your consciousness. When you ate this, you think we're starting something new. Get rid of everything that's old. Starting something new. And so when Paul talks about this, this is what he's referring to. It's, it's very clear. Get rid of all this yeast because you are a new people. Everything that's old and false, get rid of it. And then in, in the context of verses 6 through 8, he says, For Christ, in verse 7, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So he tells them this Exodus story. And then he says, Exodus was the major event then that caused them to be a new people. The cross is the event that causes us to be a new people. And now we celebrate this festival in an ongoing nature where we're constantly get rid of, getting rid of the old. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Even in Ephesians, it says, chapter 2, verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Reconciling Jew and Gentile together. So he's basically saying, look, in the Old Testament, the Exodus formed a new people. They got rid of the old. In the New Testament, Christ's death and resurrection formed a new people. Get rid of the old. That's his basis, his theology for all of this. In other words, the cross creates a new lifestyle. That's, that's his whole reasoning for every problem in Corinth. And as, as he explores it deeper and deeper, it impacts different areas of their life. This is such an important truth. And this is the reason why I started with this. is we don't, Paul doesn't just dish out some practice or some advice or some behavior modification. He first says, you've become new. Christ has died for you. Get rid of the old. You are a new batch. There's one event in history that removed everything old and makes everything new. The cross. And that's a completely big deal because every human being in existence has done something they're ashamed of. You've done something you feel guilty for. You've done something that has scarred you or scarred others and may even continue to scar you. 
It might have started in your teen years when you were young and you started to form habits and you started to do things that that weren't appropriate and then carried on into your adult life. It doesn't matter. But and some of them may be visible to the public. Some of them may be secret. Nobody quite knows about yet. But humanity, we've all done something that's broken. We've all been there. We all have a life ruined by sin somewhere along the way. That's just the inescapable reality of humanity. It's broken in some way, some shape, and some fashion. The only solution to get rid of everything of that nature is the death of Jesus. Through the cross. Nothing else will fix it. And that's what Paul's really uh, uh, focusing on here. And so we all have a choice. We can believe this message. We can embrace it. We can start to become a part of a community and become more like Christ. Or you can learn about it and try to fix the problem on your own. And if you take a quick tour of humanity, that's what many people try to do. Drugs, sex and rock and roll. You pick your habit. It's all trying to avoid this pain and brokenness. And it creates a terrible cycle. Or you try to be really good. And you try to live up to the standards. Everybody else, you try to create your own system where you're righteous. That doesn't work either. Because then you start looking down on people. And Paul says, look, you are a new loaf. You're a new batch. Eat the festival with unleavened bread. Let, Let me tell you that first. And that's always his starting point to address the behavior. And we are the unleavened loaf. Amen? Now with that in place, let's talk about what he says to do. Point number two, remove the old. He's very clear on what needs to... Not the old in the membership, okay? Yeah. Okay, at this point, if everybody old could please leave. Amen. Everybody stayed. We're young. That's awesome. Four times in this chapter, he refers to it. Verse 2. Shouldn't you have mourned and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Verse 7. Still a reference to what should happen in Corinth. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Verse 13. Finally, expel the wicked man from among you. The next time you have church and you meet together, put him out of your fellowship. This is pretty, this is pretty wild. Now, you have to imagine going to church in Corinth. All right? And imagine Brother A comes to church. And, and what Paul says is it's been reported that there's immorality going on there. It's widespread. Everybody knows about it. So you come to church, and here comes Brother A, the offender. And he comes into church, and you think, oh, man. Now, there's a variety of responses that could have been created in Corinth, right? You see this guy kind of rock up in church, and, and some people would have probably been, Why? I can't believe he's even coming to church. I'm going to sit on the other side. And, and maybe some, you know what, he's not sitting anywhere near my wife. You can see his responses, right? Because everybody knows about it. Now, that's not the majority response, but there are people that are kind of like, but then on the other end of the spectrum, there's some people that are flat out okay with it. 
They know it's ongoing. They know it's going on. And in fact, Paul says they're boasting in verse 6. How in the world does that even make sense? We don't know what they were saying, but based on the letter to the church in Corinth, it's probably something along the lines, we're so wise and spiritual that we really understand and love this guy. How dare you judge him, Paul? You don't know the whole story. And Paul said, you're boasting about this. Get this man out of here. In the Old Testament... That kind of behavior, if you read through the law, resulted in automatic expulsion. You read through Leviticus, if that happens, get him out. And then Paul says in verse 1, there's something going on in your church that even pagans don't tolerate. Roman law, it was illegal for incest. If the Roman authorities heard about this, they could have been taken to court. Even they thought that was grotesque. And he's saying, look, man, you you guys have been shaped by the cross, but there's something so gross going on in your fellowship that you're coming to church and bragging about it and boasting about it. And pagans don't even act like that. What is going on? Are you are you kidding me? You're you're, you got to imagine coming to that type of church and know what's going on. Right. That's crazy. Get rid of it. This is a cancer cell dividing. Anybody that has been diagnosed with cancer, man, that's that's a rough diagnosis. And the idea is that you start getting rid of these cells. There's no kind of, well, let me think about it. That's dangerous. Why? Because it spreads. And Paul is, yes, it's difficult to remove the cancer and it's painful, but it is for the overall health of your body that you remove that. It's insane to rationalize not removing it. That's what Paul is saying. Look, get rid of it. This will infect your fellowship. And it already is. Remove the old from your fellowship. This, this, this has a lot of applications today, you know, a, a few of them that we could talk about. One is they had the wrong focus. Paul says in verse 1, it's actually reported. He doesn't give the, his source. But he's not afraid if someone does kind of inform to say, hey, by the way, some from Chloe's household told me about this, right? Sorry, Chloe and Tyson. Yeah, watch out for those guys. But here he says... It's been reported. In other words, if this is a human, kind of a human thing, if someone finds out you told something about you, you're like, why did they tell that person? Instead of, I can't believe what I did. So they could have, if Paul says, by the way, Chloe also said that there's this, they could have been, what is going on with Chloe? Instead of what is going on in our fellowship? In that human nature, yeah. you know, some, and, and I've experienced it. Some, something comes to me and I, Hey, you know what? You got to talk about this issue. And I approach it like, who told you that? The better question is, is it true? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so that's, what's going on here. And so, and I think we, we, we have to remove the wrong focus because yeah. Paul doesn't reveal his sources to, to point them to the problem. Say, look, it doesn't matter who I heard it from. This is actually going on, and you need to stop it. Yeah. 
So that's part of that. The second thing is arrogance is very blinding. The word arrogant or proud appears over and over almost in every chapter. And it is their arrogance and pride has created divisions already, but now it's creating something that even pagans frown on. They have to imagine they got so proud and so arrogant. In chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, You guys have become arrogant, like I'm not coming to deal with this situation. And when I come, we'll see what these arrogant what power these arrogant people have. Because I'm going to come. And I'm going to come with a rod, or I'm going to come with gentleness, but I'm going to come. So there was this kind of, yeah, you know what? Paul says big things, but he's not really doing anything. And Paul, you know, says this, but he really is not even coming. There's this arrogance. And they're blind. It's like kind of strutting around like, who is Paul? And Paul says, it doesn't matter who I am. Look at your flat out fellowship. It's gross. And, and, and you can see the kind of arrogance that, that, that can get into our lives, right? If we don't remove this, it's amazing how clearly you can see everyone else's faults when you're proud. And you strut around, but you fail to look at your own. And so you've got to remove that arrogance. Or we can, we can become too relaxed. I mean, four times in one chapter, Paul says, get rid of them. He's pretty clear. There's no wavering. There's no compromise. Right? But there's plenty of compromise on, on their part. You know? Are, Paul, are we supposed to love this guy? I mean, can't... Slow down, Paul. That's harsh. That's too much. Why don't we have a little chat with him? No, get rid of this. And I think that there's a temptation to become relaxed. You know, who who are we to dive into his private life? Maybe they really love each other. This guy and this woman. Maybe we don't really know the situation, Paul. No, you're too relaxed on this. And and that can happen. We need to remove this kind of relaxed attitude. And, And Paul says, what really is revealed is you don't think God's church is that holy. You just think anybody can rock up. and It's not about performance, but it's about God is holy. And Paul is saying, look, I'm ashamed to think you, that, that you just think this kind of stuff can happen. You're too relaxed. and We've got to remove relaxed attitudes about sin, right? Yeah. Also, we, got, we can't be afraid to take action. You know, basically you get the idea when you read through the letter that they, they know Paul knows, but they're not doing anything about it. They're kind of saying, well, let's wait and see what he does. Which is interesting because if he does something, then you can kind of say, uh, that probably wasn't the best way to do that. But they're just afraid to take action. Because when, when, somebody, else does this, when somebody else takes action that's strong, it's much easier to sit back and spectate. And so they're not doing anything about it. They're afraid to take this action. Paul's coming. He'll sort it out. The leadership's coming. Just wait till they figure it out. And so he's in this funny position. How are they going to respond? Kick him out of church. Oh, Paul, that's way too hard. That's way too hard line. And and so he's in this position. And and so surely some thought this was harsh, given the context of this church. And I think that's my experience as well. Sometimes I address things that need to be addressed in a strong manner. And then I get feedback. That wasn't the best way to handle it. And not all the time, but occasionally that person hasn't even addressed it. And they've seen it all along. So the better question is, why didn't you take action? Why didn't you take action? If it's so clear, if it's so clear, take action. Lastly, we learn this is beneficial. It may sound crazy when Paul says, verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
but the, but the result is so that he may be saved. There's potentially even parallels. Job gets kind of handed over to Satan, right? A messenger of Satan comes to God, and, and, or Satan comes to God and says, can I test Job? And he says, yeah, fine, I'll hand him over to you. You can have it, but just don't do this. But in the end, Job has this deep appreciation for God, right? That's the idea. It's not so get out of our church and stay out. It's get out so that you may be saved. And may God save you on the last day. And it's beneficial for the church. There's been so many times where there's a situation removed or something happens and the church starts to be fruitful. And praise God for that. But it's beneficial when someone takes action, when they're focused, when they see, hey, this is clear, this is sin, we need to remove this. Amen? As, As individuals and as a community, we always need to remove the old. Lastly, as we finish up, live like the new. And this is the encouragement. You've been made new. I've been made new. We've been made new. Now learn to live like it. That's what Paul basically says in verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Christ has been sacrificed. And part of that means you live new. You are something new. Like he said in the last chapter about being the temple, right? You are God's temple. You are the new batch. Now just learn to live like it. It's not you have to achieve it. It's just learning to be fueled by the Spirit to live like this. Part of it means you have to have a pure lifestyle. And he'll start to talk about that more in chapters 6 and 7. But overall, living the new lifestyle involves just really tiny changes on a day-to-day basis. Tiny changes. Often I think I've misunderstood, perhaps you have as well, that the spiritual life is you convert and then there's this just dramatic shift and you become this, you know, being who walks around and floats and dispenses advice and, you know, shrugs off sin and just kind of like, you know, but that's not how it happens. Man, you convert and you struggle and you strain and you strive, right? It's not like, and, and, and when someone is, when we do see someone that's dramatically changed, it's not like the night before they just said, I'm going to dramatically change. There was a lead up to that change that we did not see, right? And so Paul just basically, it's not like tomorrow morning you wake up and you are the temple of God and you are the new batch and you're perfect and free. It's no, what's one little decision you can make that will compound and help you become more like the new? This is the British cycling team. In 1908 to 2003, they were abysmal. One Olympic gold medal, zero Tour de France winners. All right. In 2003, they hired a new performance coach because they said, Our, it got so bad that the bikes that these guys rode wouldn't even sell in the store anymore. Oh, that's the bike that the British cycling team brought? I'm not getting that thing, man. So they hired this new performance guy in 2003, and he comes in and he makes some adjustments that normal coaches would make. But then he, he just kind of did a sweeping 1% tiny change in a lot of areas. Like 1% change. Like minimal, like that everybody else would overlook. And he did this on many, many areas. One thing is he said, okay, what muscle gel are you guys using? Let's find the muscle gel that makes your muscles recover the fastest. And when you cycle, you rub down and you can recover a little bit faster. How do you guys wash your hands? 
And they show, okay, well, let's, let's bring a surgeon in here and show us how to properly wash our hands so that when we wash our hands, we won't get infected and catch a cold and we can stay more athletic. So they come in, they learn how to wash their hands properly. So now the cycling team is putting on gel and washing their hands, these tiny little changes. They said, what kind of pillow do you use? What kind of mattress do you use? Let's find the best pillow and the best mattress so you can get better sleep. So when you wake up, you're a bit more refreshed. They're washing their hands, they're rubbing their gel, they're sleeping now. And, and then some weird stuff like the trucks that they would carry the bikes in, they painted the inside of them white. So that when they looked in there, they say, does anybody see a speck of dust? They could remove the dust easily so it wouldn't be detrimental to the finely tuned bike. Okay, let's sweep it out. It's clean. Put the bike in there. When the bike comes out, there's no dust on the bike. I mean, these are like little tiny changes that you would thought, really? Come on, man. You know, painting the truck white, blah, blah, blah. Hundreds of things like that that I don't even have time to talk about. Now, here's the crazy thing. Remember this stat. 1908, for almost 100 years, one stinking metal in 2007 to 2017. 178 world championships. 66 Olympic or Paralympic gold medals. In one year, in 2008, they won almost 60% of the gold medals in that event. Eight out of 14. It's more like 57%. But 66 medals. Five Tour de France wins. And you look at that, and it, we just made little, tiny adjustments. I say that because the Christian life isn't about... I'm going to make it. I'm going to change my life tonight. It's, let me start washing my hands. <laughs> hey, man, you should do that anyway. <laughs> but the reality of that, that's minus the Holy Spirit. And you think when Paul says, live like the new. And you think, you know, the, it's very evident in who I am standing before you. The person I am is not who I was 24 years ago. It was almost a 15 to 16 year journey for, for me to even get my mind right spiritually. So when you see me here today, it's a long, flat out, minor adjustment of me washing my hands, sleeping on the pillow, nice mattress, getting the dust out. That's an encouragement to me. It ought to be encouragement to you. You can, you can live like the new. Imagine tomorrow if you just made a tiny adjustment. I think one of the most profound adjustments is just waking up 30 minutes earlier than you normally do. Or maybe even an hour. It's quiet. If you're a kid, they're not up yet. The dog's not barking or vomiting or pooping. It's, man, everything's quiet. And you'd be surprised on how much a tiny adjustment of waking 30 minutes a day changes the course of your life. If you did that every day for a year, imagine kind of how different you'd be. Imagine if everybody in the church made one tiny little adjustment, how different our church would be. And I think most of us stop before we see the fruit. We try and we try in two, three, four, five months. Oh, it's not working. You should have waited till the sixth month because that's when the championship started coming. I think that that should be a source of encouragement. You know, it's not like if you save money today, you're a millionaire tomorrow. Like if you work out today, you're in shape tomorrow. It doesn't work like that. But live like the new. Make one tiny adjustment. It's about the trajectory of your life. Maybe you just start reading the Bible every single day. 
Maybe it's praying every single day. One minor adjustment to live like the new. And that's what Paul says. We can do this aided by the Holy Spirit. To conclude today, praise God, this is not another Mother's Day sermon. (laughs) Nonetheless, and I love how Paul shapes everything based on the gospel message. You guys are a new batch. Remove the old on an ongoing basis and live like the new. And when you and I and we as a community believe in this gospel and we start to let it change our lives and then we belong to this community that practices these truths, we become as we really are, the temple of God, a new batch to God be the glory.